Tanisan and the Voice of Conscience For many years, Tanisan had been able to eat exactly what she liked and never put on an ounce of weight, enjoying a very similar metabolism to the African jumping shrew. Even now, and in spite of no effort at all on her part, she was really rather petite. All the same, she'd recently become aware of a small roll of flesh around her waist, which is very vexing when you're used to operating in a consequence-free environment. And to make matters worse, it had been clearly pointed out to her by her mother, who was only trying to be helpful, that her bottom was getting bigger. Having said that, I don't think the observation would have carried quite so much of a sting had Tanisan Senior not chosen to make it just as Tanisan stood up to deliver a speech at a sizeable family gathering. The next time that the subject of Tanisan's figure came up, it was in a more roundabout way than that. One spring morning she was getting ready to go out when someone appeared on the doorstep with a parcel for her. It was a loud and jolly woman whom she recognised but had never actually spoken to before. Her name was Mrs Ito and she was married to the local timber merchant whose place of work Tanisan passed on her way to the metro station. The package had Tanisan's address on it, but had been delivered to the Itos by mistake, which is very unusual in a country that takes efficiency into the realms of the pathological. However, because Tanisan was running late for her English class, she quickly thanked Mrs Ito for taking the trouble to deliver it, left it on the shelf in the hallway, and thought no more about it. When she finally got around to unwrapping it later that afternoon, she was confronted by a colourful presentation box containing what appeared to be a soft toy of some sort. A handwritten note had been included with it. Saw this and thought of you, it said. A friend. Tanizan looked again at the garish packaging. On the front it said, Charming George, the Diet Capybara. And below that in smaller lettering, an eminent product. In no doubt whatsoever as to the source of this item, she opened the box at one end and extracted the object in question. It was indeed a toy capybara, which had been highly cutified to maximise its appeal. I imagine it would register as turbo-cute, if measured on a properly calibrated cutometer. Of an unnaturally vivid orange colour, it consisted of a round head-slash-body, implausibly supported on legs that were so short and stubby as to be positively vestigial. As for the nose, it appeared to double as an on-off switch. Pretty soon, Tanisan had it all worked out. The idea was that whenever you were tempted to consume that extra piece of cheesecake or sinful slice of pie, you press the snout and it would issue a gentle caution to deter you. It would say things like, Take care of your body and it will last you a lifetime. Or, Now, now, think of your figure. Or, Why not have a carrot? However, when you look beyond the obvious novelty value, it didn't actually contribute very much to the war on flab. Aside from the general inconvenience of having to have the damned thing with you whenever cakes or pastries hove into view, it all seemed to hinge on the notion that instead of simply avoiding said confections, the slimmer would actually go out of his or her way to press the snout, and that having done so, the subsequent chastisement by a toy capybara called Charming George of all things would somehow act as a greater deterrent than mere willpower. As a dietary aid, then, it was pointless, and Tanisan only used it twice. 
once to test that the batteries were working, and once when one of her friends came round for tea and looked as if she was about to take the last piece of strawberry shortcake. The rest of the time it sat on a shelf in the living room gathering dust, and there it would have remained had it not been for an incident that occurred several weeks later. What happened was this. Tanisan was dusting the shelves one morning when she happened to catch the diet toy with her elbow and knocked it onto the floor. Now, ordinarily, this would have been fine, no damage done. But as luck would have it, it landed on its snout, which then became stuck in the on position. Well, after that, it would not shut up, no matter how hard she tried to prise out the conch with her trusty screwdriver. Ah! Ah! it yelled. Don't do that, it's very tender. Oh, don't be such a baby, remonstrated Tanisan, grimly determined to dislodge the troublesome hooter. I can't leave it like that. It looks as though a bus has backed into you. Yes, well, how it looks is the very least of my concerns, protested George, frantically waving his fat little legs in the air. Just leave it alone. Ah, ah, no, stop yanking at it. When it's ready, it'll pop out of its own accord. Sadly, though, this was not the case. The schnoz remained annoyingly unbudgeable. And this, in turn, precipitated a grim new reality for Tanisan, because from then on she had to put up with him being on all the time. A very different proposition to him only being on in short bursts, which was bad enough in itself. He was no longer willing or able to stand quietly on the living room shelf for weeks on end, gathering dust. He had to be up and about, moving around, following her from room to room as she went about her business. He had, in fact, acquired a sort of life by default. But worst of all was the incessant nagging, especially when Tanisan was preparing food. He would climb up onto the kitchen table and advise her on healthy eating. You're putting too much salt on those turkey slices, he would say. Or I hope you're not planning to eat that second Danish. Or do you know how many calories there are in one of those? To put all this into some sort of perspective, I should explain that Tanisan was very gifted when it came to ignoring the things that she didn't want to hear. Indeed, a successful career in politics, Scientology, or perhaps even the arms industry could have been hers. Yet even she, with her yogi-like powers of selective concentration, was tested to the limit by the plastic rodent, because the only time he would ever shut up was when she had visitors. So in the end, she was forced to look for a more permanent solution to his incessant badgering. For a time, she thought she had found the answer in television. All she had to do was to show George how to use the remote control, and he was quite happy to spend endless hours in front of the box, channel surfing. Yet in spite of the short-term gains for Tanis and vis-à-vis peace and quiet in the domestic environment, she eventually began to realise that this had been a terrible, terrible mistake. Did you know, he said as he watched her unpack the shopping one day, that 80% of the world's population lives on less than $10 a day and that plastic bags, like the ones you have there, are responsible for the deaths of thousands of sea turtles. And it's not just the oceans we have to worry about. They get into the groundwater and release toxic chemicals. In fact, there are those who say that plastic products constitute the single greatest menace to the global environment. Ah, finally something we agree on, said Tanisan, eyeing him malevolently. Ha ha, very funny, said the diet toy. The point is, what are you going to do about it? It's all very well agreeing with me, but that means nothing unless you're prepared to act. 
And the same applies to climate change. It's no good complaining about shrinking ice caps and melting polar bears if you're not even willing to turn the air conditioning down a few notches. A fair point well made, you're probably thinking. But that was only the beginning. Thanks to his burgeoning interest in television and the internet, Charming George continued to fill his little capybara head with all sorts of information gleaned from news and lifestyle programmes, documentaries and websites. Are you aware, he would say as he watched Tanisan preparing an omelette, that the excessive consumption of eggs can lead to early onset Snots Wilkinson's disease? Or on another occasion when she happened to lose her glasses, I read recently that you can avoid memory loss by eating more duck eggs. But worst of all were the endless lectures on what Tanisan should be doing, whether it be looking after a mother, volunteering to help out at the local shelter, or saving the snow leopard. Not that there was anything wrong with any of these things. It was just that, taken together, they became part of an interminable background noise that only made Tanisan all the more determined not to do any of them. Instead, she focused her efforts on dealing with the source of the annoyance, George himself. So early one morning, she went outside and dug a hole by the fence at the top of the garden. When she came back in, she found him in his usual spot, sitting on a cushion in front of the TV, watching the breakfast news. Did you know, he said, that the government is planning to build a massive nuclear reprocessing plant in northern Honshu? When Tanisan didn't say anything, he turned to look at her. Well, asked the latter-day Jiminy Cricket with irritating self-righteousness, what are you going to do about it? Convene an emergency meeting of the Toshima City Ladies' Tuesday evening flower-ranging class, said Tanisan. In the meantime, we have a more pressing problem. A little bird has fallen from its nest in the ginkgo tree, and I need your advice on what to do about it. It's over there, by the fence at the top of the garden. Eyeing her coolly, George jumped off the pillow and trotted out of the living room on his stubby pins. As soon as he was out of the room, Tanisan made straight for the closet and took out her trusty baseball bat. Then she followed him out into the garden. She could see the irritating gadget standing with his back to her, peering down into the hole that she'd just dug. So she crept up behind him and raised the bat high above her head. However, just as she was about to bring it crashing down and send him straight back to the great toy maker in the sky, there was a loud clatter behind her. Tanisan looked round, only to see the insufferable William sat on the garden table, peering at her insolently. He'd waited until she was right on the point of delivering the fatal blow before knocking over a flower pot. Not that he gave a fig for the life of charming George. He simply wanted to annoy Tanisan and foil her plans. In any event, the little capybara looked round at precisely the same moment and caught her in the act of being just about to clobber him. So he went scampering off across the backyard as fast as his stumpy legs would carry him. Murder! he cried out to anyone who would listen. Murder! Murder! Nonetheless, Tanisan continued to chase him up and down, keenly observed by the mesmerised William. Then just when she thought she had him boxed in between the doorstep and the herb garden, he saw a way out and shot up the drainpipe. Shortly afterwards, she heard him scurrying about inside the walls which was bad enough, but when he then started talking to her through the plug holes and toilet bowl, it was like living in a bloody Edgar Allan Poe story. This is the voice of your conscience, came his hollow tones whenever Tanisan tried to steal a few precious moments in the smallest room. 
Why did you want to kill me? I was only trying to help you. I still can. All we have to do is to change your personality completely. Now listen to me. And so on. Unfortunately, there were only certain things that Tanisan could do short of blocking up the plug holes, which wasn't very hygienic. By far the best solution was to drown him out with music on her wireless headphones. That way, she could go about her business, confident in the knowledge that it was only a matter of time before his batteries ran down. Then one morning, a few days later, she awoke to an eerie silence all about the house. Warily at first, she went from room to room, putting her head in the wash basins and using the toilet bowl like an ear trumpet. Hello? She called out, speaking directly into the bowl. Are you still alive? You can come out now. There's no need to be afraid. Which wasn't true, as it happens. Cocking her head to one side, she listened carefully. There was no soft pattering of tiny feet. No scratching inside the walls. All the same, she thought it best to be doubly sure. OK, she said. I was wrong. Perhaps murder isn't the ultimate problem-solving tool that I always took it to be. But that's progress, isn't it? So you can believe me when I say that I'm sorry and that I do want to be a better person. Again, Tanisan leant in closer. Not a squeak. All right, she added slyly. That's it, then. You're not here. I suppose I'll just have to go back to my bad old ways as you're not around to guide me. Just to be sure that he'd well and truly snuffed it, Tanisan spent the next few days trying to provoke a reaction from him. Knowing how strongly he'd felt about her wasteful tendencies, she made certain to leave the lights on in every room and to turn the air conditioning up full blast. Yet this elicited zero response from the voice of conscience. And as time went on, it seemed increasingly likely that he had gone to meet his manufacturer. A few days later, though, something very unusual happened. On the morning in question, Tanisan was out shopping with her friend, Mrs Ishihama, who somehow or other managed to get herself stuck in a bush. Believe it or not, the getting stuck in a bush part was not the unusual thing. What was unusual was Tanisan's reaction to it. In the normal course of events, she would have been very irritated indeed, because it meant having to wait around for the emergency services. Again. But on this occasion, she just sat nicely with the visible half of her friend, holding her hand and helping her to take little sips of mineral water when required. Once she'd been extricated, they went back to Tanisan's house for some much-needed refreshment, whereupon Mrs Ishihama made an astute observation. This was bound to happen at some point by dint of sheer probability. I can't help noticing that there are no cakes in your fridge, she remarked, on inspecting its frosty shells for some suitable accompaniment to the Wittard summer fruits. Tanisan joined her in the soft, welcoming glow of the Hitachi solfege. She was right. Not a pie, pudding or pastry in sight. Very much in evidence, however, was the sort of food that Tanisan wouldn't usually touch with a barge pole. Japanese plums, fermented soybeans compressed seaweed and so on. If she ever tried to survive on a diet like that, she thought, there was no guarantee that she would live any longer, but it would certainly feel like it. And another thing, said Mrs Ish, who was definitely on form that morning, since when did you care so much about separating your non-burnables? 
That's the best bagging I've ever seen. Tennyson looked to the indicated spot. Lined up like a row of soldiers were four exquisitely packed bags of glass bottles, plastic bottles, other plastics and tin cans, all scrupulously cleaned and ready to be put out for collection. She could not recall having ever taken so much trouble to meet the stringent recycling regulations. But what other explanation was there? It was her garbage. She must have sorted it. And then she remembered how charming George had always berated her for being less than fastidious about separating her household waste. Yet that would be to suppose that he had somehow continued to exert an influence on her from beyond the grave. Unless, of course, he wasn't actually dead after all. To establish that finally and forever, Tannis had decided to carry out an experiment. Before going to bed that night, she sprinkled some flour on the kitchen, the living room and the bedroom floor. When she awoke the following morning, she discovered a trail of powdery tracks leading from under her dressing table to the edge of her bed and back again. With that, her worst suspicions were confirmed. The crafty little so-and-so had only been pretending to be dead. All the same, Tanisan decided to play it cool. After breakfast, she went shopping in Ikebukuro, and when she returned, she had with her all the usual groceries, plus a number of special items that she'd picked up at Tokyo Hands, the department store. She then spent the next 20 minutes in the back bedroom of her house, constructing a crude effigy of herself. First, she took an old pillow and dressed it up in the pink, badass T-shirt that she usually wore to bed. Then she blew up one of the balloons that she had bought and tied it to the top. That done, she glued on a black Halloween wig and hid the whole thing in the bedroom closet. It was an excruciating wait until nightfall. Tannison had to go on pretending that she was still under the diet toy's spell, which meant having to endure an entire day of seaweed and soybeans before she could reasonably turn in. When at last bedtime arrived, she went through the usual ritual of brushing her teeth and getting undressed, but instead of climbing into bed, she substituted the dummy, making sure that only a sprout of black hair was visible above the duvet. Having baited the trap, she then hid in the shadows and waited for the battery-powered nuisance to appear. She didn't have to wait long. Hardly ten minutes had elapsed before she heard a faint scratching sound coming from behind the bookcase. By the way, I should explain that Tanisan tended to pile all of her belongings up around the edges of the room, leaving an empty space in the middle for her futon. This meant that anything coming out of the walls would have to negotiate a number of obstacles before it could reach her. Indeed, she was able to track his movements by the rattling of coat hangers, the shifting of shoeboxes and the rustling of plastic bags. Then finally he emerged from the hollow beneath her dressing table and stood in a silvery pool of moonlight, sniffing the air. Crawling forward on his belly, he climbed up onto Tanisan's futon and then slowly, inexorably made his way over to where the sprout of black wig hair stood out against the whiteness of the pillow. Seating himself by the side of the dummy's head, he then leant forward and began whispering into what he thought was Tanisan's right ear. As for Tanisan herself, she skipped shock and horror and went straight to utter outrage. If there was one thing she couldn't stand, it was someone trying to manipulate her. And in this case, it was such a vile invasion of her personal space that she simply couldn't contain herself. 
Letting out a fierce shriek, she leapt out of the shadows and threw one end of the duvet over the capybara's head before it had any idea what was going on. Charming George wriggled and squirmed and thrashed about, but Tanisan held on to him tightly. Then reaching into her pocket for her trusty pliers, she got him into a headlock and fastened the jaws onto the end of his hooter. Ah! Ah! went the adenoidal rodent as he struggled to pull free. No! No! Yet Tanisan held on to the conch like a myopic dentist, grimly determined not to let go of it until it came unstuck. Finally, she was rewarded with a soft click, followed by immediate silence. Looking down at the little orange head jutting out from beneath her armpit, she was pleased to see that Charming George's black button eyes had reacquired all of their innate glassiness. At last, he was an object again. The following morning, a mysterious package landed on the doorstep of old Mrs Ouya, the hearing-impaired octogenarian who lived a couple of doors down from Tanisan. She carried it through into the living room and unwrapped it on her lap, taking a moment to read the handwritten note that had fallen out of the packaging. Saw this and thought of you, it said. A friend. Well, 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 you're a cute little fellow, aren't you? She cooed, stroking his orange head. I wonder what you do. She pressed his button conch, and with that, the tiresome entity known as Charming George sprang back into life. Listen to me, he barked, knowing that he may only have a few moments to get his message across. There's been a terrible mistake. I belong to Mrs Tanny down the street, but I've ended up here by accident. I don't know why, so what you've got to do is to take me back. Do you hear me? It's very important that you take me back. The diet toy was suddenly cut off as his snout clicked back into the off position. Yet old Mrs Ouya was none the wiser as she'd forgotten to put in her hearing aid that morning. Oh dear, she said, you appear to be on the blink. Let's try you again, shall we? She pressed the snout once more, presenting George with another fleeting window of opportunity. What's the matter with you? he said. Are you deaf or something? I'm trying to tell you that you have to take me back. Is that so difficult to understand? Oh, please, please, press my nose again. Just do it, you stupid old bat. Here, though, his snout reverted to the off mode. Oh, well, said Mrs Ouya, broken or not, you're one of the cutest little things I've ever seen. So I shall call you Mrs Sylvester, and you shall have pride of place among the special things. Now, as I said, George's eyes had a glassy quality when he was switched off. Yet on this occasion, they seemed to acquire a look of impotent despair as the slightly dotty Mrs Ouya carried him over to a glass cabinet and placed him carefully between a mannequin neckle and a porcelain penguin before closing the door and sealing him in. A fitting end, you might say, for a curious piece of bric-a-brac that had to be reminded of its proper place.